Well, thank you for joining me today on Financially Speaking. My name is Mitch Slater. I'm a Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor with UBS Wealth Management in Westfield, New Jersey. We're along with my partners, Ann and Crystal. We do our best to bring you advice beyond investing and address our clients' most challenging financial needs. It's my sincere hope that each and every episode of this podcast will educate you on personal finance and real-life business issues of the day. So let's jump right in. So a few years ago, JetBlue chairman Joel Peterson wrote a short book about a big idea, that building a culture of trust is the only way to break down silos and fix the CYA mentality that plagues many organizations. The book was so well-received that he has now added an expanded edition after reader feedback showed him that mistrust in business was an even bigger problem than he thought. Personally, I found the updated book, The Ten Laws of Trust, Building the Bonds That Make a Business Great, takes a lifetime of management and family experience and distills it into practical wisdom about what it takes to create a high-performance organization that runs on passion rather than fear. I am so honored to have with me in studio today at UBS, Joel Peterson, who, as I said, is the chairman of JetBlue Airways and the founding partner of Peterson Partners. He was previously the CEO of Trammell Crow Company and since 1992 has been on the faculty at Stanford's Graduate School of Business, where he has won multiple awards. So many, I can't even get into it. There's so many awards. Welcome, Joel. (laughs) Thanks so much for being here today. So I always like to start the show by hearing about people's journeys as nobody just kind of wakes up one morning and becomes the chairman of a major airline or very successful or teaching at Stanford. A previous guest, uh, Flip Flippins, yes, that actually is his name, talked about everyone having a first story, the one they didn't write themselves, but began their life with and was given to them. What was your first story? So I was born in Iowa, moved to Michigan, was Midwesterner. Mm -hmm. Well, that means you're nice. I married a Michigan girl, so. (laughs) Yeah, well, they say that. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure it's always true, but uh, I remember somebody in Michigan scratched a letter Y on our license plate so that it read, rather than the corn state, the corny state. Hmm. And I remember feeling humiliated as a little kid. So that's the first story I remember. I don't know if that was your question. Well, no, uh, no, no. It's a terrific story. I think I was looking a little bit of your childhood and just sort of your your, background. So went to the public schools, went to Michigan State University, which is a public. Go Spartans. Go Spartans. (laughs) My father was on the faculty there. I ended up going to Brigham Young University for two years and then straight to Harvard Business School. Interesting sidelight is at Harvard Business School, my study mate was Ray Dalio. Oh. Who's done better than I have. <laughs> done better than everybody. Yeah, he's, but, he's done uh, really great. Ray and I were two guys, I think, who both came out of undergraduate directly to Harvard Business School and from universities that were not Yale, Harvard, exactly. Princeton, or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, uh, now, I think when you were a senior at Harvard, you saw a posting somewhere about a job. I mean, there was just some some kind of a story I remember so, yeah, hearing. Yeah. yeah, this is when I was a mm-hmm. second year right. student at Harvard Business School. There was a three-by-five card on a bulletin board that said, looking for somebody to go to the French Riviera to build buildings. How had someone not pulled that card down already? <laughs> well, it wasn't even going through placement. You know, Trammell didn't even go through placement. And there right. were that, and you needed to be fluent in French. And I'd lived in France for a couple of years. And so there weren't that many Harvard MBAs fluent in French who were not going to work for banks or consulting firms, which is where everybody went at the time. So hmm. I took the job. I spent a couple of years in France and then got pulled back to the United States as the treasurer mm-hmm. of Trammell Crow. What kind of business was Trammell Crow? It was a uh, it development. Yeah. Yeah. Real estate development. Real estate mm-hmm. development. Office, warehouse, shopping centers. Eventually became the largest private developer in the world. 
So it was quite successful. But when I first came back, I was made the treasurer and I discovered within a few weeks that we didn't have any cash. And treasurers tend to focus on cash. It's kind of the big part of the <laughs> yeah, job. Yeah. 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 So in any event, the CFO left, right. given there was no cash. And they looked around and said, who can we, who can we pick? Who's dumb enough? Let's take that kid that we yeah. sent to the French yeah. Riviera. Let's take him. <laughs> and so I became at a very young age, the CFO of a company that was in workout. So I, I cut my teeth on workouts. Absolutely. And it was the best experience I've ever had. I mean, it was fantastic. Yeah. Well, I learned the business. Absolutely. And, yeah. Literally from the ground floor up. Yeah. There's so much incredible wisdom and advice in the book. But before we go specifically there, I wanted to ask you briefly, as we head into a new decade, your thoughts as the chairman of JetBlue, where you see us heading in, let's say, the modern version of the Roaring Twenties. I don't know. We have to come up with a name for the Twenties. I guess you wait till the end of the Twenties to figure it out. But although it would have been the Crash Twenties, I guess, if they waited to 29. But anyway, I heard you quote Warren Buffett recently. And I love this, that things would have been easier for the airline industry if Wilbur had shot Orville down. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> More specifically, how JetBlue, which already has been a great success story, will be building its marketing strategy in a, in a crowded space going forward. Well, it's a capital-intensive business. It's regulated. It's a difficult business. And fundamentally, it's a commodity business. People fly the same equipment between the same two spots. So you have to figure out how do you differentiate within a commodity business, which is tricky. And it's also consolidating. So it used to be you could start a new airline and there was space for right. new entrants. It's pretty tough now. So I think we're looking at more consolidation. We're looking at an end. There's not that much more consolidation that can go on. Right. The four large carriers have 80, 85% of the market. Right. And right. JetBlue in Alaska. Sure. Is it challenging as chairman? Obviously, one of the big roles is looking at CEOs. Is there just like a, a different pool of people that you look at that have airline experience? Or is there something else that, that really makes the big difference and, and certainly explains the success of JetBlue? Well, I think there's a lot that's not related to the airline business per se. It has to do with character as well as airline competence. I actually think that being sort of organized around other human beings and around culture and serving customers is really, really vital. And people either have that we can tell when somebody has jet fuel in their veins, mm -hmm. they are kind of industry wonks. Right. But if they have this other thing that says, you know, we want to bring on great people, have them achieve their maximum, give them opportunities, you almost have to grow those yourself. It's hard to go outside the organization and bring in somebody with that. At UBS, we have a series titled Longer Term Investments, which publishes reports about secular trends and transformational technologies, big picture kind of commentary. And recently, they wrote a story about space and space travel. So I'm kind of curious if you see any suborbital travel entering the commercial airline space in the next decade at all. Not in my lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm thinking specifically of the 19 hours that it, the recent flight that an airline had, you know, from New York to Sydney that cut from 19 hours that maybe one day could be four hours in, in orbital. Yeah. But is this, you say not in your lifetime, but is there in the next decade steps being taken? You know, there's a lot of things that are happening. The, the airframes that mm -hmm. we're flying, so the 357, the 737 rather, at Boeing is a 1960s airframe. And so there has not been a lot of change, but now they have composite materials. These new NEO engines are 15% more fuel efficient. We made an investment in electric planes. So that, I think there are a lot of things going on. So whether that mm -hmm. not that's possible, what right. happens there, I don't predict. You don't have your spacesuit yet. You're not, no, you're not, you're not. Know. <laughs> okay. So I was doing a bit of research and I spoke to a good friend's son. His name is Sam Fisher. 
Sam said to tell you, if you don't remember him, he was the Stanford sports guy who knows your daughter, Elise. Ah. Okay. Sam graduated Stanford's MBA program last year, and he mentioned a great line that you always ask the students, and I, I loved it, and I thought I would ask it of you today. What does winning look like? Yeah. Well, that is the question that I always ask. Most people respond to an issue in the moment, and they try to solve something. And I'm always asking them, what are you solving for? Imagine what winning would look like. Even if you're losing the moment, it might be you're losing less. But imagine what, if you were to tell somebody, today I won, what would a winning look like? And that's a great question to just organize your thinking. It gets you to think headlines. So I really believe that most people get so far in the weeds solving the granular problems Mm -hmm. that they forget about the headlines. So I always remind my students, what would winning look like? Because I give them thorny problems in um, sort of vignette form. Sure. Say, what would you do? Take an action. Mm -hmm. Now, before you take the action, think about what would winning look like? That's a long answer to a short question. No, no, that's great. That's great. And (laughs) what are you noticing about the Stanford grads today that kind of makes you optimistic? I mean, how do these millennials react to, for example, your strong positions on trust? So I love them, for Mm -hmm. one thing. I mean, these are fantastic human beings. I think they are going to make the world a better place. They're very inclusive. They're very thoughtful. They are relieved. They are naturally more wary, more cautious than maybe we were growing up. They've had the mortgage crisis. They've had the admission scandals. They've had a bunch of things that have troubled them. They're not joiners. But when I talk to them about trust and that you can be intentional about being trustworthy, about building trust into your family, about building high trust organizations, they're relieved. They embrace it. They want to live a life of high trust. Oh, that's, that's great. So let's dive into this fantastic book. So why did you originally decide to write a book about trust? And, and of course, now expanded. What, what's the origin that was burning inside of you to take this on? So it doesn't have the, the greatest story behind it. I got betrayed, you know, and I had to ask myself because I thought I was really a trustworthy person. And how could this happen to me? I mean, for a while, I was really just sort of blaming the world and blaming these people and everything. And then I said, you know, what was it about this? Was this a a pseudo trust, fake trust? Was this not a well thought out trust? So I factor analyzed trust. What makes up high trust organizations? Who can you trust? Who shouldn't you trust? Is there a way to think about trust in a way that it becomes a thoughtful, hard edged concept and not just a fuzzy feel good notion? And the more I thought about it and the more I talked with people about it, the more I thought there really are some principles. There are what I call the 10 laws of trust. And if an organization will behave consistently with those laws, it can increase the trust levels, which increases the happiness, the productivity, the innovation, the flexibility, the durability of agreements, the speed with which they get things done. All kinds of good things happen, but you have to be rigorous about it. You can't just come in and act how you feel. No, it's truly the secret sauce, it right? Is. It is. So how big of a problem really is trust today at most American companies? Is management aware of the scope of these problems at these companies? Management is viscerally aware because things are slow and there are lawyers involved, double riveting all agreements and people are cautious about everything. There's threats of litigation. There are all these, they're viscerally aware that something isn't quite right, but I don't think they would necessarily get their arms around and say, what is trust and why don't we have high trust? What could we do to change that? I don't think people have thought it through so much, which is another reason that, you know, I thought getting it all down on paper might be helpful. To so give us some examples of companies that are maybe getting it right, some of the things that they're doing, and maybe some that 
either will never get it at all or, or a classic mistake, maybe something that you've talked about in your class, for example? You know, in the auto industry, I think GM has not gotten it right and may never get it right. They're kind of an aristocracy, bureaucracy, and the way they behave. I think Ford has done a lot to get it right. I've had Alan Mulally in class three times now, and I think Ford has really done a bunch of amazing things. I think JetBlue has done a phenomenal job at building a unique culture in this commodity business that's tough to... Yeah, very tough to do. I was also uh, the original investor in a company called Bonobos, which sells men's pants over mm -hmm. the internet, if you can believe uh, it. Yeah, I remember yeah. the name. <laughs> uh, Probably have a pair somewhere. <laughs> yeah, well, anyway, they've done a fantastic job. Now, they sold to Walmart, mm -hmm. so it'll be interesting to see if they can infect Walmart with some of the spirit of... Do you get ideas from some of your students? So they, Absolutely. I mean, at Stanford, they're starting all kinds of companies. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I think fully 25% of the students get involved in company startups. Whatever. I mean, it's very entrepreneurial. Sure. So I get all, lots of ideas from them, but I get ideas from everybody. Hmm. You know, I think uh, you, you just have to be curious. Yeah, exactly. So Moses had his Ten Commandments, and you have the Ten Laws of Trust. You don't have to climb a mountain to get them, folks. The book is on Amazon. But let's talk about what you would say are the top maybe three or four, which I imagine is like asking you which of your seven kids uh, you like the best. Not, not easy, but want people to read this book, so not giving it all away. So you know, maybe talk about a couple that you think yeah. really so hit home. I, I do kind of feel it. it's a little bit like asking, what's more important, food, water, or air? <laughs> You know, I mean, any one of them is take it away and you're going to die. Right. So, so it's not in any particular order. Yeah. yeah. But I, I, I do think that the integrity of the leader is the starting point. I think if you have a leader with without integrity, it's really hard to build a high trust organization. And that integrity is measured by the say do gap. In other words, how different is what they say from what they do? And if there's a big gap there, people are so smart, they pick up on it. It kind of doesn't matter what you say if they can observe you violating trust in what you do, behaving in a way that is inconsistent. So I think that kind of sort of structural integrity is really vital. It seems to me that communication, you know, organizations that don't communicate really well before, during, and after events, bad news as well as good news, have a really hard time building high trust. People are so good at spin these days, so good at news dumps on Friday afternoon before Super Bowl weekend. Mm -hmm. You know, they've learned how to how to manipulate, guess what? People know it. Right. They figure it out. So I think communicating, I think another one is respect. And respect is something that is measured all the way down to the newest employee, to the lowest level employee. People pick up on whether they're shown respect and people who are respecters of persons, who are respecters of position. They don't build high trust organizations. No, and so I those would be three. And I find people speaking in the millennial generation, they're very aware of that. Yeah, I mean, immediately aware of it, and they're not going to tolerate and work in an organization where they don't feel respected. No matter, it doesn't matter, you know, where they're starting. It's yeah. so critical. And obviously, I'm glad you talk about communication because even before all the incredible types of communication today, there are companies that you know did some amazing things. I'm reminded of the Tylenol story, which is a, a classic story. I love bringing that one up because I actually live in the house where the, um, the head of HR, public 
relations at Tylenol worked. And actually on our front lawn is where they held the press conference because immediately they got right to it. But the gentleman who lived in our house before us was working for uh, McNeil, I think, or yeah. J&J. Um, this is on your own? Lawn? Yeah, yeah. Literally, there's a picture of him having a press conference on his front lawn. Yeah. People found out where he lived and, and they it's a classic business school case. You know, so I used to have a partner who said, you can't talk your way out of problems you've behaved your way in. And I think that's a lot of, you know, people trying to spin their way out and give a, give a gloss on something. It doesn't build trust. It may get you through the moment, but it doesn't build trust. And then in the long run, what you're doing is you're building a culture of trust, building a team that is a high trust team that can depend on one another. You see a lot of similarities in sports to mm -hmm. business when you oh, talk about teams. I do. And I get in trouble every once in a while because I use sports analogies for everything. <laughs> I mean, they're so powerful. Yes, they are. Because you win as a team. Right. You know, and what goes on in the locker room makes a difference. And what the plays, the coaches call makes a difference. And everybody has an assignment and you have to bench players. They may be great people. They may be the fastest in the 40 yard, but you bench them if they can't catch the ball. Exactly. And so there's a lot of, the analogies are just perfect. Oh, absolutely. And, 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 you know, going from ownership down to, you know, to the players to, right. to you know, it's a big deal. And we're a little sensitive to that in the New York area. Um, we've not had a lot of great success with a number of our teams. I won't get too much into my Mets, but anyway, I've heard you discuss millennials and the mistrust that they often have towards some companies or industries. And in my experience, that lack of trust may not be directly related to a company's product or service, but perhaps how the company impacts the environment how and where they source raw materials, the perception of gender equity within their ranks. And obviously this matters a lot to millennials, not just consumers, but as employees and investors. And at UBS, we've actually invested a great deal around this concept and how it relates to sustainable investing. Is this something you see at JetBlue or, or with some other companies that you've invested in? Is this, I guess, another way in which to create and build trust today? Absolutely. I mean, I, th I think these things are important. They matter. What troubles me is sometimes when people or organizations, managements are leading with them as a marketing tool, where it's not really genuine, where they're promoting people only for gender reasons or only for diversity reasons or whatever. I think that tends to backfire. I think if people will pick the best person, you know, there was a guy by the name of uh, Gustavo Dudamel, who was a, I think he's the conductor of the LA Symphony or something mm -hmm. like that. He used to do tryouts where he'd do it behind a curtain. So he couldn't see who the person, so there's no bias as to It's a brilliant idea. And, yeah. and I think if people will really be true to those kinds of things, they can build terrific high trust organizations. But I think people who, who get too caught up in the flavor of the moment and end up creating some kind of artificial situations that, that don't work. No, that's so true. So I want to talk a little bit about technology before we wrap up and how it can help or hurt when it comes to building this culture of trust. So we've got so many people telecommuting, working from home, WebEx, Skype meetings, even technology as simple as email and more recently Slack. The, these all reduce the face-to-face -face time within an organization. So what advice do you give to your businesses and students to overcome technology or even better use technology to build the right culture? Yeah, I think first of all, I'd say that technology is fantastic for speeding things up, for keeping people. It does so many things for us to make us more productive, but it's like everything. There's a, it's a two-edged sword and you can lose the personal kind. So I would say never get in a fight in an email. Most emails you should sleep on before you send them out. 
I think very short communication of time, date, whatever is fine. But I think any substantive issues are better handled face-to-face. I am a big believer in sticking your nose in somebody's door and talking with them. Because then you have the two-way feedback. It happens immediately. There's body language. There's all the other 90% of what our communication is that isn't captured in an email. So I think it, you, we can use it to make ourselves way more efficient, to cross silos effectively. But if it's abused, there's a big downside. So companies really need to train face-to-face, not as not, you know, just like they train technology. Maybe they have to teach some of the younger generation really what face-to-face means. Yeah. Well, I think, I think one of the things is this idea that a lot of the skills going forward that are really going to matter are creativity, EQ, innovation, connecting dots. So I think we have a lot of students now who've learned STEM. You know, they're very focused on, right. on the narrow, on the small, on the discrete, and they're good at that, but they've not yet learned how to reach outside of their particular area. I think that's a really important skill going forward. Hmm. What's the newest and exciting technology that you've seen recently? Oh, gosh. Ask my kids. (laughs) I'm a dinosaur. (laughs) Well, yeah, but a very successful dinosaur. And, and, you know, the Jurassic period hasn't begun, so we're we're, we're good. I can't thank you enough, Joel, for stopping by our UBS studios today and spending time with me on our Financially Speaking podcast. So many great takeaways for our audience to think about and hopefully implement in their work lives. And I can't think of a better book to be reading on your next JetBlue flight, for example, than the 10 Laws of Trust. And to quote retired General Stanley McChrystal, trust is the essential enabler for truly great teams, and no one understands, practices, or explains it like Joel Peterson and provides a clear pathway, or maybe I should say runway, for those willing to nurture it. Thank you again, Joel. Really, really appreciate. And special thanks to Lisa Barnes at 48 Public Relations for helping make this interview possible. Thanks to my partner, Ann Trainer for her input in today's episode. As always, thanks to the folks at Resonate Recording for all the editing work and Anthony Pastore, the lord of the studio here, for allowing us to use this wonderful studio for this very special episode. And as always, remember, when saving for whatever you need, to make your business or your life great, always pay yourself first. Have a great week.